pray with me, please? Eternal God, our Father, and how we love to call you our Father. We thank you so much for the privilege and the opportunity to worship you. We thank you for the beauty of this sanctuary and of your people as we gather. And as we yield this preaching moment to you, we pray that you would speak to us and that you would grant we would have ears of a disciple and that we would hear and heed that that you would say to us this moment. And our prayer is that we would leave this place being found a little closer to you and perhaps even a little more like you. For we ask it in the name of him who loved us best, Jesus, even the Christ, amen. It's good to be here with you. It's wonderful to share with you again and to see all of you. And I trust that God has dealt graciously with you and that you're doing well, you look well. And it's good to see you so much. I have two things that I need to do. One is try to preach. I'll do the best that I can. The other thing is I understand that you've kind of uh, lost your amen grip. <laughs> and so I'm supposed to teach you afresh that when the preacher is preaching, you're supposed to say, amen. All right, we'll get along real well like that. Now, in the culture that I'm from, saying amen to a preacher is like saying sick em to a dog. <laughs> if you want the preacher to go, just shout amen. amen. And another thing that it'll do, it'll help you stay awake. If you say amen, it's hard to go to sleep if you're saying amen. And then uh, the final thing that amen will do for you, uh, it will scare the preacher so that he'll quickly finish the sermon. So it makes it go real fast if you just kind of say amen. Amen. All right, there you go, there you go. Now don't make me work that hard. Now here's, here's the problem, here's the problem, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to move on. Here's the problem. You can't nod your head because I may not be looking your way. So you have to say amen so we can keep moving on. We go. We're going to work out pretty good. All right. Thank you so much. Have you ever noticed, have you ever noticed that we are in an instant society that uh, we want things to happen overnight? We want, we want instant success. We want everything to be instant. And that somehow or another has crept into the church to where we kind of expect things to just happen overnight. And the problem is that it doesn't quite work that way. Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 21. I want to lift one verse. I'm going to read it in the English Standard Version of the Holy Scripture. I think he has you to stand, doesn't he? Let's stand and read that, that one verse together. I keep up with you all because I go to, I go to tallywood.org and I know, I know what's going on. I get all of my good sermons from him, just don't tell him. <laughs> he, he may start charging me, so don't tell him. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us 
bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. I want to talk about plan to hang around a while. Thank you. You may have your seats. Plan to hang around a while. And looking at the 21st chapter of Acts, it seems to be geographical in its nature. Luke, the writer, seems to give us the movement of Paul and his comrades as they are moving from one place to another. He even fills us in on how sorrowful the event is as they are departing, speaking about the fact that their hearts are torn apart. He even goes into details of them having a prophet to insist that Paul not go to Jerusalem for the final time, to which Paul responds, why do you weep and and make me sorrowful of heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but to die for the name of our Lord. He had a commitment. And if you aren't careful, you'll get caught up in all of that. And I'm, I'm sure that's the movement of the text, this, this wonderful experience that's taking place. But Luke also chooses to pin with somewhat ambiguity. He pins this idea of a group that goes with them and depending on which version you read, it could be that they meet him perhaps halfway on their way, but in any case, We know that there are some fellow travelers that are disciples of the Lord. And then there is this one named character. His name is Nason, an odd name, but his name is there. And then it says this expression, and I love it. It says that he's an old disciple. Other versions read that he's an early disciple or that he's a disciple from the early days. The, today's English says he's one of the earliest disciples or a believer since the early days. The New Voice Bible says that he was one of the first disciples. And here's my favorite, that he's a disciple of long standing. That this guy, Nason, whoever he was, unnamed other than here in this one little verse that you can easily run past, but it's there that he's an old disciple. And with this particular situation, in this critical moment in his life and ministry, among the unnamed heroes in the caravan, there is this one guy named Nason that Luke highlights, and I think for our benefit, that he highlights him as an old disciple, an age disciple. I'd like to think that he's a matured disciple. I'd like to think that he's been through some storms, that he's been through some fires, and he's the kind of guy you want to have when you're facing a critical moment such as this. It's this Nason, not, not Paul, but it's Nason who captures our attention. We don't know much about him, and so we've kind of got to infer or maybe we need to just kind of, kind of, uh, speculate may be the wrong word, but we need to ponder perhaps over this aged disciple, this disciple 
of long standing. And that's what I want to suggest to you, that when you look at him, he says some things to us. Nason says some things to us, even though he says nothing. He says some things to us, even though he doesn't speak. Listen at him. He speaks to us related to, first of all, the meaning of discipleship. That when you think about Nason, it reveals, I think, the meaning of discipleship. And it was Eugene Peterson who says, discipleship is anything that causes what is believed in the heart to have demonstrable consequences in our daily life. That there ought to be a connection between our belief and our behavior. That what we actually believe at some point ought to be reflected in how we live. And I think a part of that is that we ought to have, here's my preacher word of the day, stick to that we ought to be able to stick it out, that just because things become difficult, just because circumstances become difficult, doesn't mean we throw in the towel, but we have the spirit of a disciple. We have the ability to hang in there. We have the ability to draw from the grace of God. And your pastor says that when grace dances, everybody ought to dance. He understood the meaning of discipleship and he experienced the power of Christ on his life. And I would say to you, brothers and sisters, that that doesn't happen overnight, that that the Christian life is not the life of a tumbleweed, it's more the life of a redwood, that you've you've got to make plans to hang in there regardless of how the flag hangs in battle. It's discipleship. It's following the teacher and his teachings. It's following, it's following the principles and the person. It's, it's following through. And Barclay says, it is possible to be a follower of Jesus without being a disciple, to be a camp follower without being a soldier of the king, to be a hanger-on in some great work without pulling one's weight. Once someone was talking to a great scholar about a young man, he said, so-and-so tells me that he was one of your students. The teacher answered devastatingly and said, he may have attended my lectures, but he was not one of my students. You see, there's a world of difference between attending lectures and being a student. It's, it's one of the supreme handicaps, he says, of the church, that in the church there are so many distant followers of Jesus and so few real disciples. How are you on that? How's your discipleship? Like Esther, it may be that we are here for this particular moment in time. I think Nason reveals to us the meaning of discipleship. Now I steal from Dr. Hatchett with artless transition. The second thing is the value of maturity. That not only does Nason teach us the meaning of discipleship, but he teaches us the value of maturity. John McNaughton says, maturity begins to grow when you can sense your concern for others outweigh your concern for yourself. You know you're on the right road. You know you're doing well when you can sense that others have more value and importance than your own self. And so it is maturity, isn't it, that conveys the idea of strength and stability. It is, it is the idea of sight, not mere hindsight, but insight and foresight. It is, it is God shaping us 
for service as he matures us. And I think that's what Luke highlights when he gives us this old disciple, this disciple of long standing, this aged yet active disciple of our Lord who's been a tested and tried veteran who have seen things come and seen things go. And I'd like to think he's kind of like the men of Iskar who had understanding of the time and knew what they ought to do. And so as he's facing this crisis, this critical moment in his ministry, Luke inserts Nason's name. Could it have been yours? Could it have been mine? Would we have had the maturity to handle this particular moment. He teaches us the meaning of discipleship, but he also teaches us the value of maturity. How do you weigh it? How do you, how do you really value maturity? He teaches us finally the importance of faithful, faithfulness. Faithfulness produces fruitfulness. It implies God's favor for without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faithfulness is not about success, but rather about following our Lord and his leadership. And as we read of old Nason, the old disciple, the disciple of long standing, he speaks to us about faithfulness, the ability to see it to the end, the ability to go all the way through. It's refreshing, I think, to look back and in our own day, in our own time, when there are so many who become frustrated and so many who give in so quickly that we, like Mason, like Nason, decide that we would be faithful, that we would see it all the way to the end. May not be outstanding. He doesn't write a book. He doesn't make it to the who's who's list of New Testament characters, but he's there right on the pages of Scripture speaking to us as an old disciple, as a disciple from the early days. He started out perhaps as a younger man, but he stayed long enough to grow old and gray and wise, and now he stands. And it was George Washington Carver who says, how far you go in life, Depends on your being tender with the young, patient with the old, sympathetic with the striving, tolerant with the weak and the strong, because someday in life you will have been all of those. Can you be faithful? Will you be faithful? The book of Judges relates an experience and it simply says, and every man stood in his own place. Can you be counted on to be Faithful to run your leg of the race. That's how I want to end it. It was a it was a track team that went to the state track meet, and they they were known for their mile relay race, and and they had a guy that was just a star athlete, and he would always bring it in. In fact, they were not only predicted to win, but to break the state record. But the night before the track race, he was sick, and so the coach comes in to the guys and says. Our star athlete gets sick. I need somebody that'll run a mile. I know you haven't trained. I know you're not prepared, but I need somebody that'll run a mile for me in the race. And there he was, a young guy who didn't fit the bill, hollow-chested, knock-kneed, but he volunteered to run the mile. 
And sure enough, the next day they gave him an opportunity. He was the last leg in the, in the relay team. And I mean, they were running. They were outpacing. And they finally passed him the baton. And sure as you know it, he runs a few feet and he drops the baton. But he stoops down and picks it up. And he runs again. And sure enough, he drops it again. But he stoops down and he picks it up. A third time, he's running with all of his might and he drops it again. But he picks it up. And as he's running and he's been lapped on the track, no way he can catch up. They begin to bring out the hurdles as though to start the next race. But someone says, no, sir, you can't start a new race until the first race is over. And sure enough, after everyone had finished, he finally crosses the finish line. And they hurriedly cheer and applaud. And here comes the press corps and they question him, young man, why? What was it that made you stay in the race? Why didn't you quit? You couldn't win. You couldn't have made up all of that time. Why did you stay in the race? He said, coach told me that our star athlete was sick and we needed somebody to run a mile. He didn't tell me I had to win. He just told me to run a mile and I promised the coach that I'd run a mile. Jesus is calling on you and I to run our mile. In fact, he says, If you're compelled to go one, go two. And my question to you this morning, are you willing to see your race all the way to the end? And the church said, Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Speak to our hearts. Let us hear as you challenge us to be true disciples and to prove that authenticity by our faithfulness to you. Bless now your people, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.